I know, like I say, I'm a teacher, so in teaching, you get to do that every year. You know, come, come August, you're like, all right, you know, I'm going to do this different. I'm going to, and, and uh, you get a whole new batch of kids, minus one or two repeat offenders. Uh, but when you change everything and you do something completely different, they don't know because they weren't paying attention the first time. That's why they're back a second time. And if they make a comment about, like, I don't remember doing this last year. It's like, yeah, well, you were sleeping through it. That's why you're back. You don't have to tell them. Uh, so it's that time when, when we get to kind of make our mind up to turn over a new leaf. I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm not trying to preach a message about that, but, but there is that element to it. The, the thought that I want us to focus on this morning, and maybe it's a good thought to focus on if you haven't picked a resolution yet. Uh, well, I'm not big on picking resolutions. I, I know I'm not going to keep them. Um, I'm just not one of those people. I, I, this is a side, side note, but I was reading something the other day, and it was a gentleman who was writing an article, and it was a good, you know, like advice thing. And he was saying, you know, some things that he'd found that made him more successful and some things that he'd strayed away from. He was just trying to give good advice, like, hey, here's a good app to download, or hey, here's a good book to read or whatever. And he's like, he made this comment early in the article, when I made up my mind to, to you know, get fit or whatever, and he's going on about how much time he spent at the gym and every single day, and he never missed a day, and for three years straight. And I was like, yeah, I can go ahead and quit reading this now because this guy and I have nothing in common. I just can't, I just, I can't stay with anything like that. Uh, my mind just wanders, and I just kind of wander with it. Um, but all of us, myself included, need to take an opportunity. This is a good opportunity to take to think about this, this thought. What would you be capable of? If your heart and your mind were in the right place. And that's a simple thought. And there's a million different ways you can go with it. I can't tell you how many times um, I've had an opportunity in front of me. Whether it was some, some one-on-one time with my wife. Whether it was uh, a chance to, to preach or teach or do, just do something interesting. And, and you have that opportunity, and you're like, oh, I'll prepare for it. I'll be ready for it. And then it comes and goes, and after it, and you're like, gosh, man, I, I could have done this. I could have done that. If my heart and my mind had been dedicated to it and really invested in it, I could have done more. I could have done better. Uh, what could we do if our hearts and our minds were in the right place? Here's what I can say in the coming year. We know absolutely for certain three things. One... You don't know, I don't know, what we're capable of. I don't know what I'm capable of. You don't know what you're capable of. Every one of us would love to live up to our full potential. Who doesn't want to live up to their full potential? I mean, that's just, it's in every one of us to just, you know, try to be the best version of ourselves. And we really don't know what we're capable of. That's number one. Number two, God does know what you're capable of. And he needs you to live up to that potential. He's counting on you. There's a work for you to do that nobody else can do. Or nobody can do it the way you can do it. Or nobody can do it as well as you can do it. Or there's a person that you can reach and touch that somebody else can't reach and touch. Not the way that you can. Not motivate them the way that you could do it. And you say, oh, well, if I don't talk to so-and-so, somebody else will do it. Probably so. You're probably right. There's probably somebody in your work circle, in your relationship circle, people, family members, coworkers, whatever, in-laws and outlaws, that you have some power to influence, and you think, oh, well, it's really just not my thing. If I don't do it, somebody else will do it. And they, yeah, probably so. God cares enough about that person to motivate somebody else to be a part of their life. But how many of us in the room can say, man, I wish I'd gotten on board with God sooner? You're cutting them out of that time by not talking to them now, right? By not doing it now. So um, God knows what you're capable of. He needs you to live up to your potential. I don't want God cleaning up the messes I left behind for the work I didn't do. I just want to do it. One, you don't know what you're capable of. Two, God does. And three, if you're willing, God can close the gap between number one and number two. Being willing is a big thought, though, because being willing may take you places you didn't intend to go. Uh, God may ask more of you than you had originally thought of when you signed up for whatever God was 
planning for you. You know, you can't always guarantee uh, that it's going to be the path that you thought you were going to get to take. In fact, I can almost guarantee that it's not the path that you thought you were going to take. But I want to encourage you this year, uh, think about this. What, what, am I, what am I capable of? What are my gifts? And how can God use me in the coming year? I want to take you to Scripture uh, for a little bit of point of reference of what I'm talking about. Um, and it'll be a minute before we read any Scripture or put any on the board. But I'm going to kind of canvas some of First uh, and Second Samuel. Uh, you've heard about David a lot. And so I'm not going to harp on it. I'm not going to go into great detail about the life of, of King David, because I think you've probably heard about it before, um, and maybe that's a little bit of a, of a worn-out message, but I do want to kind of canvas David's life, because there's something I want you to pull out of it. Of his brothers, David was the runt of the litter. Um, Israel went through a period of time after they were, eh, got to go back a little bit, um, the, they, the people had the promised land, because Abraham inherited it. And then they had to leave the promised land because of famine. And then, you know, 400 years later they return. But they have to fight to get the land back. And Joshua leads and they fight and they get the land back. And then eventually, some, oh, I think it's three or 400 years later, David is in line to become king. But God's plan for the people was not for them to have a king. He had religious leaders in charge. We call them Judges, that's what the, the book of the Bible, Judges, is about. Um, a, a more appropriate way to think about that, because when we think of judges, we think of people in black robes with a gavel, more like religious tribal leaders. And if it was the book of tribal leaders, I think more people would pick it up and read it. Um, judges kind of sounds lame. Uh, but anyway, I think, I think that's a good way to think of it. There was a period of time where they lived that way, and they're like, no, we want a king, God. We want a king. We don't want... And God said, I don't think you want a king. And they're like, no, we do, we do. And so he gave them Saul, and Saul was not a good king. He was selfish. He was ambitious. He did what he wanted to do and not what God wanted him to do. And God said, I'm going to give you a good, a good king, and I'm going to pick somebody, not Saul's children, not somebody next in the line of the throne. I'm going to pick somebody completely different. And he sent the priest Samuel to, to David's family said, go to Jesse's house, and I want you to pick one of his sons to be king. And I'll show you which one. But I got to warn you, don't use your eyes. Don't use your mind when you're trying to pick him. You got to look at the heart. And so David's first son gets up and I, I can relate to this because I'm the runt of my litter. Uh, my brother Curtis is, you know, probably yay tall. And my brother Kevin is, is a little yay taller and is built like a refrigerator. And if you needed somebody to like take down a giant for you, I would pick Kevin. I would not pick Matt. Uh, I don't look like a giant slayer. Kevin looks like a giant. I've seen Kevin slay some giants before, in fact. He's got that way about him. Um, David's older brothers looked the part. They looked like kings. They looked like leaders. They looked like a guy that could wear a crown and hold a scepter and get the job done. And God rejected them one by one and said, no, nah, that's, not, that's not what I want. They finally run out of sons. And uh, Samuel says to Jesse, you got any more kids? And he said, y'all, I got David. He's just a sweet, handsome, ruddy little dude. He's, he's as sweet as he can be, but I don't know that he's really king material. Well, bring him in. And God said, that's the one. And so he anoints David to be king, but he's a, he's a little kid. It's going to be a long time before he's king. We got to suffer through a lot of years of Saul first, but God was already preparing David to be that king that he called him to be through his life experiences. And he did slay that giant. And you may not, you know that story, but you may not know this part when I was studying this last night, because by the way, I didn't get the call about doing this today until it was about 7.30, 8 o'clock last night. Dennis sends me a text message, and he's like, hey, you think you could be on deck to preach in case I don't feel up to it tomorrow? I'm like, absolutely. Now I got some work to do. Um, we'll talk later. I actually had a little message cooking already, so that worked out. Um, so David, when he faced that giant, his older brothers the ones that looked fit to take down a giant, they were there. Jesse's oldest three sons were already conscripted to battle with King Saul. They were there. They didn't want to face the giant. And David stood there, and he said, well, isn't somebody going to take this giant down? I'm like, I don't know who can do it. He goes, I'll do it. And Saul, in all of his kingly wisdom, says, 
you know, 10-year-old kid wants, sounds good to me. Okay, let's do it. And uh, here, kid, wear my armor. And David's trying to put it on. I can't wear this stuff. I haven't proved it. This isn't, this isn't my, this isn't the way I do things. I've taken down lions before. I've taken down bears before. And I did it with my sling. And most importantly, I did it with God. And that's all I'm, that's, that's all I know. So that's how I'm going to do it. And he takes the giant down and we know that. And later, uh, God gives him more opportunities to prove his kingliness. Saul seeks David to kill him because David is popular. I mean, who wouldn't be interested in the story of this kid, this handsome young boy who's slain a giant? I mean, that's pretty cool and saved Israel from the, from the enemy. And Saul wants him gone. And David could have run away and never come back because a powerful king was after him, but he didn't. He stuck it out. He had opportunities to kill Saul. There was a moment in David's life when he's in a cave hiding, and Saul lays down and sleeps in that very cave, and David walks up to him. He could have just slit his throat right then, but instead he just cuts a corner off his robe and hands it to him later and said, I could have, but I didn't. Because David didn't want to kill anybody. He does. But he doesn't seek that. He seeks to do whatever God wants him to do. David ends up becoming king of Israel and is the most successful king Israel ever has. He rules over a period of Israel when they were the most prosperous they were ever going to be. And it wasn't because David was a remarkable person. The Bible says David was a man after God's own heart. And that's all it takes. It doesn't take being the most skilled leader. It doesn't take being the most handsome person. It doesn't take being the best at talking to a crowd of people. It just takes being willing to submit to what God wants you to do and doing what God wants you to do. And that's what David was willing to do. He was not a perfect man. Even after God called him, he screwed up. He screwed up majorly. And you know that story too, probably. He plotted. He didn't just, this was not a crime of passion. David did not slay a man and take his wife in a moment. He plotted and planned the murder of a, of a friend of his, of a, of a general in his army, so that he could steal that guy's wife. I mean, that's dark stuff. And God didn't cut him loose after it happened. David knew how to fail and then get back up on the horse and get his heart and his mind in the right place and do it again. And we've all been there. We've all failed God, every single one of us. And we may be at a point in our life right now, at this moment, I don't know where you're at. You may be at a point in your life right now where you're saying, I, I don't know how God could even use me, and I've messed up so many times. I'm going to try to keep my head down, and I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to get myself into heaven, and that's probably the most I can possibly do because I don't think I could be a good influence on anybody else. That's not the example that the Bible gives us. God takes broken people who've screwed up real bad and he realigns them and he reanoints their pathway. They get back on the horse and then they do great things. And many times they do greater things after the failure than they did before the failure. And we've got examples of that coming up of people like that. David was not a perfect man, but when he fell, he got back up. He sought God's forgiveness, and he carried on God's work. But let's look at a contrasting story. So David is a good example. Um, we might be tempted sometimes to look into the Bible and say every character in the Bible is a person we should model our lives after, but that is absolutely not true. The Bible gives us a lot of anti-examples, people you should absolutely not follow. Um, and Solomon is kind of one of those. So... David's son, Solomon, kind of gives us the other side of this story. David inherited a kingdom that was in trouble. They had really shaky leadership. The people did not any longer trust the era of the judges or the tribal leaders. And they got a really bad king in Saul. And so they've, they've, they've been through a few tough relationships. And so David becomes king in a moment when the people really aren't sure that they can trust their leadership. And there's enemies everywhere. All of the enemies of Israel are just lined up at every border, just waiting to do them harm. And David takes over in all of that mess, and the runt of the litter brings peace to Israel. He establishes the capital 
at Jerusalem. He conquers the enemies. David's mighty men of valor that go with him and go into battle with him. There's, a, there's a, an account in the Bible. I'm being careful not to use the word story. There's an account in the Bible where one of David's men has been fighting for so long and slaying so many enemies, he can't pry his hand off the hilt of his sword anymore. They can't get his fingers unlatched from the sword. He's been holding it for so long. David just absolutely mopped the floor with God's enemies, not by the strength of his own hand, but because God worked through David, worked through the runt of the litter to bring stability and peace and prosperity to the land of Israel. And it was great, and everything was good. And David's like, I've done it, God. I've put your capital in place. I've conquered your enemies. I've restored the people's faith in their leadership, their leadership's connection to God. I'm ready to build your temple so we can worship you properly. Because they were still worshiping in the tent they'd been carrying around in the desert. And God said, David, love you, buddy. I don't want you to build my temple. And David, in humility, said, okay, but I'll get the supplies collected. And so he collects a lot of the supplies that they're going to need. Spoils of war that he'd taken from his enemies, uh, cedar trees he'd ordered from Lebanon to come down and, and be there to build that beautiful temple. And when Solomon takes over, he has every advantage. David inherited a kingdom at war. Solomon inherited a kingdom at peace. David inherited a group of people who didn't trust their leaders. Solomon was just this smooth transition to power, and everybody would have trusted him as the son of David to be able to do the right thing. And early in his career, Solomon was really dedicated. And there's that moment that you're probably familiar with where God says, Solomon, I'm so happy with you. You just name it, man, and I will give it to you, whatever you want. And Solomon says, all I want is the wisdom to lead your people. And God said, oh, man. That answer touches my heart. You could have asked for money. You could have asked for power, and you didn't. You asked for wisdom, and I'm going to give you wisdom, and I'm going to give you power and money too. I'm going to give it all to you. Solomon has everything, and the entire time he's leader of Israel, there is no war because David has conquered all the enemies. It's a time of peace and prosperity. They build the temple, and everything ought to be hunky-dory. But there's a difference between Solomon and David. David was a man after God's own heart. He had his heart and his mind in the right place. And Solomon apparently did not. Solomon loved the ladies. There is a tawdry book in the Bible, kids. If you haven't read the Song of Solomon, okay. It's a little it, PG-13 anyway, at least. It's, a, it, it's interesting. Solomon was a passionate guy, but that passion led him away from God instead of toward him. He took lots of wives, and he allowed the influence of these various women to lead him to a place where he was compromised, and he was willing to allow the service to other gods in his kingdom, and he, his own heart was compromised in the service to other gods. He had it all. He had every gift you could want and he spoiled it, and he ruined it. And when David left his kingdom to Solomon, it was a kingdom of peace and prosperity. And when Solomon hands his kingdom off to his son, it is cracked so deeply that at the moment Solomon dies, it splits into two. And there's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and they're never really put back together again. Because there's just no clear leadership, because there's no clear connection to God. Every advantage that he had, every gift that he had, and he just didn't keep it together because his heart and his mind just were not in the right place. It's weird how some people's lives seem to be a constant, turbulent mess, and other people seem to have it pretty easy. And it's not always a simple explanation. But if we have our heart and our mind where it's supposed to be, and we're serving God, and I know a lot of people will get up and they'll say something like, you got to give God everything you've got and you've got to find more time and you've got to do more. And you've got... I'm not saying that. 
You may be already doing exactly what God wants you. God doesn't want you so stretched thin that you can't do anything anymore. Because I've been there. There are a lot of things that I've put down because I just can't do 75 things at once. God's calling me to do one or two things well, not 115 things. And I feel like I fell in a well, right? I'm not saying that. Solomon could have focused on the things that God wanted him to do, and he would have done well, like David did. But he didn't. And so he hands off this broken kingdom. And a lot of us have broken lives where we've just, it's a mess. Maybe, maybe it's just a situation of circumstances, but maybe you haven't been quite faithful to the role that God has called you into. I got to believe if you get your priorities in the right order, things will start to kind of turn out a little differently. Um, okay, so make sure I'm on my notes here. I get off and then I get to talking. Uh, so Solomon had it all. Why did Solomon fail where David succeeded? Okay, well, one of the things you know about David is that he wrote a lot. When you think of Psalms, you probably think of David. If you didn't before, you should because he wrote like a lot of them. But he didn't write them all. So we're going to look at a little bit of scripture. We're going to look at it maybe a little differently than we typically do on a Sunday morning. I'm going to kind of analyze it a little bit, um, but it's going to be quick. It's not, it's not a lot. So first, something you might not know is Solomon wrote psalms as well. He wrote two of them, Psalm 127 and Psalm 72. And what I want to do is look at the two psalms of Solomon and compare them to a psalm of David, and I think you'll see what I'm getting at. So let's look at Psalm 127. Verse 1. Jenny will have that on the screen for us. Psalm 127, verse 1 and 2 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Okay. That's good advice. Like, you got to put God first. And if you put God first, you get a little bit of a smoother path. He didn't take his own advice, obviously. But it was good advice. It kind of, when I'm reading Solomon, I'm reminded of Benjamin Franklin. You know, Benjamin Franklin used to say, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy and wise, and all these smart sayings. But when you read about him in his old age, he was just like a drunk partier who was just a mess, you know? And people couldn't hardly stand to be around him. Uh, he didn't take his own good advice. And Solomon's kind of the same way. He's got all these wise proverbs, all these wise sayings, but he didn't even take his own advice. It sounds good on paper, but it's just kind of, hey, here's a thing you could do. Look at Psalm 72, verses 1 through 3. This is the other psalm of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son, which is himself. He's talking about himself. May he judge your people. He's talking in the third person. He's like Bob Dole. Uh, may I, basically, judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. And that sounds good. That's good stuff. That's a great prayer for a king to have. God, just help me do it right. Help me do a good job. That sounds in line with the kinds of things that Solomon would say. There's nothing wrong with it. It's good advice. Those are good psalms to read but compare them to a psalm of David. As I was studying for this message, I'm like, David wrote so many psalms, I got to pick one. And I was like, oh, which one am I going to pick? And so I was at Psalm 72, and I just flipped back a couple pages, and I was like, that's it. That's the perfect one. Psalm 69, verse 5 and 6. Just look at the way David conducts himself. Oh, God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. The humility of David is apparent in his words. He was a man after God's own heart. And what he cares about most of all is not necessarily being the best king or being the best warrior leader. He said, God, man, I've messed up. You know how bad I've messed up. And he's not even praying for himself in this moment. He's saying, God, 
don't let anybody else get knocked off the path because of my mess-ups. Whatever you've got to do to me, let the people see what they're supposed to see. He just, he's selfless. And it's an example to follow. It's a beautiful thing, the kind of man that David is. So obviously broken of his pride, he knows his place. David has his heart and his mind right where God wants him to have it. And he doesn't do it right all the time. He screws up. He still messes up, but he gets back on the horse and he says, you know what, God, just put in me a right heart. Get me back on the path and I'll do it better next time. And he does. And then he messes up again and then he gets back on the horse again and that's okay. God built a mighty kingdom out of that. A few weeks ago, uh, Jennifer and, and Olive and, and I and Marie and all them, we went to the Sight and Sound Theater in Branson to watch the Christmas program. It was a really beautiful program. Um, as we're sitting there waiting to watch it, they, they run slides of like all their previous productions. And I was reminded of the last show I had gone there to see. If you have not gone to Sight and Sound Theater, it's not cheap to go, but man, is it worth it. What a wonderful experience that you'll have there. Um, really put big Bible productions on. The last one I went to was Samson. And I was sitting here waiting for the show to start and watching kind of some slides of Samson. And this, the seed of what, what you're hearing right here today was planted right then. Because I'm sitting there watching this kind of scene and I'm thinking about the life of Samson in my mind. And I'm thinking, what a wonderful gift Samson had. He was so strong, we can't even conceive of it. And when you watch the, the, the play there at Sight and Sound, they've got like this big urn, which is obviously made out of foam, probably, you know. But it doesn't look like it. It looks like it's this big, heavy ceramic thing. And there's like three guys, and they're trying to, oh, and they can't get it. And Samson just comes over and just picks it up, you know, and takes it where they want it to go, you know. And when you hear about somebody who slays a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, you're like, this dude was legit. I mean, he was ripped. He, was, he smelled what the rock was cooking a long time ago, right? He was a cool dude. He was a very powerful man. But golly, he wasted it so badly. Samson is one of those people. We actually got out of that show and we bought, Carter wanted the little, that little Samson figurine. And I was like, well, we'll buy it because, you know, he remembers the show and that's cool. But that's a terrible role model. Like, don't, don't be like Samson. Samson did every wrong thing you could possibly imagine. If you're not familiar with the story, he killed the first 30 guys, his great first act of strength was killing 30 guys because he lost a bet and needed money. He needed, he promised that he would provide a bunch of clothes and cash and stuff to these guys if they guessed his riddle, and they guessed his riddle because he wasn't good at choosing girls either. His wife kind of threw him under the bus there, which I think his quote was, you wouldn't have guessed my riddle if you weren't plowing with my heifer. And I was like, well, okay, that's one way to phrase it. Uh, he says... Take that for what you will. That's Bible. That is a direct quote. Uh, he said, man, I'm in, a, I'm in trouble. I think I'll just go. And he just slaughters 30 dudes. That is not a godly thing to do, right? And then Samson's next act of strength, which he, sl he slays a 1,000 Philistines. And we know Philistines are the bad guys, so that sounds good. But it's really not good. David got mad because his father-in-law pulled a fast one on him. And in his temper... Because he was bent out of shape, he threw a fit and burned a bunch of land down, burned a bunch of crops down. And the Philistines were like, well, then we're just going to come kill everybody because you burned our crops down. And so they sent Samson bound and gagged to the Philistines like, just take, it's his fault, take him. And then he killed them all. It's not exactly the same as David goes into battle righteously because God calls him into battle and then he defeats his foes. A lot of times when armies go out to war and God calls them to that war, they don't even end up fighting. They wake up in the morning and the enemy army's just gone or they killed themselves or they get drowned in the Red Sea or whatever. In this case, God didn't say, oh, Samson, go kill a thousand Philistines because I, I need them wiped out. It was his own hand that led him there. There's nothing good the guy does. And he ends up going out of this world in a murder-suicide. What a terrible story. God gave him a fantastic gift, and he blew it. What could God have done with a man like Samson if his heart 
and his mind were in the right place. I don't know. We'll never know because it's not going to happen again. I don't think God's ever going to give that kind of power to a man again. Maybe he will. It hasn't happened in the however many thousand years since. Man, what he could have accomplished for God. What great stories about him accounts. They can be stories since they didn't happen. Uh, we would have read about him. I don't want to be a Samson. I want to be a David. I don't have to always get it right, but I got to get back on the horse and I got to do what God is calling me to do. I can't just throw a temper and do it my way. I can't just get a wild hair to do what I want and then plow through. I've got to get God's heart and God's mind. What a gift. What a waste. What could a person like Samson have done? What could a person like you do? I don't know. I don't know what your full potential is. You don't know what your full potential is. Only God knows what your full potential is. And he's needing you to do whatever it is that you have the potential to do. You just got to get your heart and your mind in the right place. You don't have to know the answer. You don't have to know what the next step is. He's not going to tell you what the next step is. He never does. He says, you just get in the right place and just let me lead you. You put your foot out and I'll put something under it. And that's the way God works. Why? I don't know. He's God and I'm not. If I could understand him, he wouldn't be God. But I know there's a lot of people who've done a lot of amazing things that never would have done it because they never would have taken the first step if they'd known where the road would lead. But taking it one step at a time was fine. Not a big deal. Every little setback's just a little setback. And I'll get it and I'll plow through and I'll see, I'll see God on the other side of it. And you make it. Because that's the way God calls us to work. What's holding you back from your full potential? And for each one of us, it's going to be something, something different. Maybe you're like Solomon. And you've grown up knowing the one true God. Solomon knew about God from the time he was born. David, I guarantee, David gave some good Bible studies. I bet he did. Solomon grew up knowing everything that he needed to know, but he allowed himself to serve other gods. And it's easy in America today to serve other gods. We don't put a statue on the coffee table and pray to it. I hope you don't. I don't personally know of anybody doing that. Hindus do that sometimes, but um, you're probably not doing that. But we serve the god of money. We serve the god of entertainment. We serve the God of family. Jesus said, if you love your family more than you love me, you're not worthy of me. We've got to put him in the preeminent position and let everything else be second to God. That does not mean you have to give up everything. You don't have to sell everything you own and become a missionary. You don't have to cut yourself off from your family. You don't have, like, just one step at a time, man. Just get your heart and mind in the right place and let God take you where he wants you to go. If you sold everything you had today and said, I'm going to do this thing, and you just went out there and tried to conquer the world for God, you'd mess it up because you can't do it. Only God can do it, and he's only going to enable you when he calls you. Wait for his call. Get your heart and your mind in the right place, and he'll set your steps. And what he has you to do might be right next door. It might take 10 minutes. And then there'll be something else, and then there'll be something else. And that's okay. To some degree, we all allow distractions to rob us. I mean, it's one thing to say, yeah, I just don't go to church because I want to make a million dollars, and I'm just going to work, and I'm just not going to go to church. Okay, we get that. That would be serving another God. But it's also easy to just come home from what you get up in the morning, and you've just got a hundred things to do, and you just don't have time, so you just take care of what you absolutely have to take care of, and then you go to work, and you just do the work thing, and when you finally get a lunch break, you just, and then you get done with the lunch break, and you go back to work, and then you get home, and you've got to make the meals, and make sure the homework gets done, and make sure the lunches get packed for tomorrow, and all this stuff, and you didn't leave an inch for God. Well, you're serving other gods then. You didn't mean to. 
You didn't put something in that position because you were trying to edge God out, but it just happens. We don't give him any space. Do you have any time in your day where you just have peace? Because the still, silent voice of God talks to us in peaceful moments. God had a, a, a real cap for this message today, and I never would have got it. All this stuff we've talked about so far, I've been ruminating on that for weeks. But the, the real nail in the coffin here for this message, God had to get me away to give it to me. When Dennis called me, see, Jennifer and I, uh, we came home, and we are going to kind of have the evening at home, and she would bought some shelves for a closet in a spare room. We are going to clean that closet out and kind of change the way we do it. And we got the, the old stuff out, got all the stuff out of the closet, and then it was just nasty looking in there. I mean, scuff marks and dings, and it needed to be painted. And so she's like, oh, I guess we're going to have to paint the closet. I'm like, well, I'll do that. And so while she's in the other room with Carter and she and Carter are doing their thing, I'm in the closet. I'm literally in a closet. And I'm painting. And I got new headphones for Christmas, so I got them in. I'm listening to a song. And the song has this line in it that just, oh, it's like anthem for me. And I'm just inspired by it. And I'm like, ooh, that would be a good message at church. And it starts kind of, this message kind of starts coming to me. And then my phone buzzes, and I get the message. And I'm like, Dennis, I need you to preach tomorrow maybe. Okay. Well, that's convenient. He said, can you do that? I texted him back. I said, absolutely. In fact, not five seconds ago, I was getting inspiration. He goes, man, I hope that doesn't mean I got a hard night coming. (laughs) Apparently it did. I'm sorry for him, but I like doing this, so this is kind of fun. I'm all right with it. I hope he gets better soon. So... How did God communicate? He got me alone, and he got me quiet, where I didn't have 10... Painting is mindless work. Right? So it doesn't... So your brain is free to wander. When I'm working, when I'm stacking wood or cutting the lawn or whatever, that God talks to you then because you're not doing something else. Your mind isn't so... On all these things... I don't know how my wife does it. Her mind is constantly like doing like 75 things at one time. She's asking me, have you done this yet? Have you done that? Did you call them? Did you check this? And I'm like, golly, I'd be worn out if my brain went like that all the time. All God has to do is just get my hands busy, and he's got my brain. And so he got my brain last night, and he gave me what I needed. Do you give God any time to talk to you? Do you talk to him? What's your prayer life like? Mine's not nearly as good as it ought to be confession. It's not nearly as good as it ought to be. That's something I can work on this year. Getting my heart and my mind in the right place is going to involve that, and I know that. So that's something I can work on. Another thing that tends to separate us sometimes, I've heard pastors call them pet sins. They're usually little things. That tendency to want to know what's going on with people, that gossip thing that we like to do, that holding on to that grudge, constantly having a short fuse with a certain person who just drives you crazy. I'm talking from my own experience. (laughs) These are all things that I know about. A wandering eye. You're in a committed relationship. You're not cheating on your spouse. But that eye wanders. We drink too much. We could have quit those pain pills after the back surgery, and we didn't. But it's okay. I'm in control of it. I can stop if I want to. Wow, man. Those are the things, those little pet sins. Maybe that's the kind of thing that's keeping you from God. Is it service to another God? Is it a pet sin that you haven't gotten rid of yet? We all harbor something. If I listed things long enough, I'd get yours. I don't know what it is, but you do. And the devil does because he uses that against you all the time. He's, you are right where you need to be and God's working in you and devil pushes that button because he knows he can push it and derail you and get you off from what you're supposed to be doing. I know, I've been there. And maybe the guilt of that sin is holding you back. 
I want to point you to another piece of scripture, and this is the heart of the message, and I'm, I'm winding it up here. Um, you remember Jesus had told Peter, Peter, you are the rock upon whom I will build my church. But he also told Peter, they're at the end of his life, hey, they're going to come get me and I'm going to die. And Peter says, I'm not going to let him kill you, God. I'm going to go with you. If you die, I'm going to die with you. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you're going to deny that you even know me. And Peter said, no, I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And he does. You know, I don't know him. I don't know who that is. I've never met the man. And his heart's broke. And Jesus dies. And they wonder, was this all just like not even real? We've been following this guy around all this time and we've seen miraculous things, but he, he died and he's gone and Peter just doesn't know what to do. And he goes back to fishing because he doesn't know what else to do. Man, I let God down and I, maybe, maybe if I had stood up for Jesus, he wouldn't have died. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe I'm the, I don't know. And he's troubled. And he's just back to fishing because he doesn't know what else to do. And I bet that was super unfulfilling. Can you imagine? Having walked with Jesus, having watched the blind see, having watched the lame walk, and then going back to fishing? And they're fishing one day, and they're not catching anything. And there's a guy on the shore who's got a little fire going. And he says, hey, boys, you catching anything? And they said, no. And he said, you know, why don't you throw your nets over the other side of the boat? And there's a little in the back of Peter's mind. I've heard something like this before. There was a time a few years ago when a guy said that. It's probably nothing. And they throw the nets over and they bring in like 150-some fish in one pull. And they bring the boat to shore, and they're like, who is this guy? And they're walking up, and nobody recognizes the resurrected Jesus at first. They never, he's just different enough that they don't quite know who he is. And they walk up, and they're like, who's this guy? And he says, hey, did you bring your fish. Let's have breakfast. I got a fire built. And then they realize who it is. It's Jesus. He's back. And the joy that must have filled Peter's heart, but also this, that prick. Oh, God. I failed you. I looked you right in the eyes and I said, I don't know who you are. And I know that's what he was thinking about. And his mind was just troubled by it. So happy to see Jesus and so sad that he failed him. And here's what Jesus says. And this is in John chapter 21, verse 15. Can you put that up, babe? When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. He's getting tired of this. Do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep one time, two times, three times. This is not a coincidence. You failed me once. You failed me twice. You failed me three times. And I say to you once, what do I need you to do, Peter? Do you love me? I love you. Okay. Then do the work I called you to do. But I failed you. Okay. Twice you failed me. Twice, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do. Then go do the work I called you to do. Three times. Why three times? Because he needed him to know. Every time you fail, I forgive. Every time you fall short, I put you right back where you need to be. Your mission has not changed. I knew you would fail me when I told you you were the rock I was going to build my church on, and nothing has changed. Go feed my sheep. And look at the next line. Truly, truly, I say to you, and this is Jesus talking to Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and you walked wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. One more verse. He said this to show Peter by what 
kind of death he was to glorify God. And after that, he said to him, follow me. Peter's heart and mind were in the right place. Peter was the passionate disciple. When Jesus comes walking on the water, it's Peter that's like, I'm going to come out to you. And he's out on that water because he's just all passion and no thought. And he just plows into it. He, his heart was there. And then at that moment where it came to the test, he failed. And he got off track. And now God's got him back on track. And he says, now I've got you. And all the pieces are in place. Before you were passionate, but you weren't, you lacked the wisdom. Now you've seen it. You went through a, the period of darkness where you questioned your faith. You went through the time when you thought you'd lost it all. And now it's been restored. And you really understand the joy of serving me. Now you're ready. Will you follow me? And Peter said, I'll follow you. And he goes, last time you said you would follow me to death and you lied. But you'll follow me to death now, won't you, Peter? And Peter said, I'll follow you anywhere. And God says, that's what I'm calling you to do. You're going to die. You used to walk where you wanted to go. But there's a day coming when somebody's going to dress you like they dressed me. They're going to take your clothes off, and they're going to put something else on, and they're going to stretch your hands out on a cross, and they're going to crucify you upside down. And you will do it out of a passion to follow me. I know you will, because I know your heart. And what God is saying to each of us is, I know your heart. Get your heart and your mind in the right place. And then I've saved all this time for the title slide, because I want this to hit. Because this is what God hit me with last night. Whatever it is, here's where you are right now. And across the river is where you're supposed to be. Whatever that is. Uh, bottles you need to pour out. That's what Jeff had to do. Jeff will tell his testimony all the time. He made up his mind. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to follow God. And I can't be a drunk and do that. And as miserable as it made him feel to do it, he went through every cabinet and he got out every bottle and he dumped every bottle down because once it's down the sink, I have no way to go back. I can't go back. It's gone. I can't say, well, I'll just keep that one bottle under the pantry. And then if I get in a real bad, if I have a real bad day, I can go pull it. No, it all goes down the sink. The pills get flushed, the, the app that pulls your mind away, the web browser you use to pull up pictures you shouldn't look at, just delete it. There's no going back. I'm going to make a decision today, right now, this thing that I know stands between me and God, I'm just going to get rid of it so the temptation is completely gone and there's no going back. We have to get on the boat, cross the river, burn the ships. Just burn the ships so there's no going back. Song that was playing right before Dennis texted me was for King and Country. There's a line in there. It says, step into a new day. We can rise up from the dust and walk away. We can dance upon our heartache. All the pain I suffered before, I can celebrate that pain now. Light a match, leave the past, burn the ships, and don't look back. And as we get ready to start that new year, whatever that is, you know what it is. I don't need to come up with a list. Like, oh, you're right, I do have that pet sin. Oh, I am served. You know what it is. Burn the ships and don't look back. We have a challenge coming up, starting today. The Read Scripture app, we've been asking you to, to download it and to prepare yourself. Maybe reading the Bible is one of those hang-ups for you. It's like, well, I just don't read. Well, guess what? God gave us his word in a book. So you live in an age of information. This is good. You can have the Bible read to you. You can download Bible apps that will read the Bible to you. You don't even have to read it. But we're asking you to do this read scripture thing. And I told you in the announcement section in the last couple weeks, when the day comes, the last Sunday before we start, I will show you how to set this thing up, and that's now. So I'm going to do that in just a minute. Hold on, Jenny. I'm not going to talk about it just yet. But first, I want you to think about this. Maybe it's your prayer life that needs work. Maybe it's your Bible reading life that needs work. Maybe there's something that's 
you're holding yourself accountable for guilt that needs God forgives whatever it is that you're blaming yourself for and you're holding yourself accountable for God's not God's done with it God doesn't that's in the past you seek forgiveness it gets wiped out step into a new day rise up from the dust and walk away light the match burn the ships and what I want to do Um, Will you come on up to the piano? What I want to do as Glenda comes up is I just want to enter into just a a few moments. If somebody needs to come up to an altar because you feel like you need to come up to an altar, that's fine. Altars are open. You can do that. But what I want to encourage everybody, a lot of times the things that stand between us and God, we know them. We will gladly confess them to God. We don't want to confess them to another flesh and blood person. Maybe they're embarrassing. Maybe it's something you just don't need everybody in the world to know about. Okay, well, we had a list earlier. Maybe it's quest for money. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's booze. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's a wandering heart, a wandering eye. There's a million things on that list. What I want to do is in this moment while Glenda plays, I just want us to all close our eyes and bow our heads. And I want you to think about the thing that's standing between you and God. And in this moment, you can confess that to God. I know what it is, God. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burn that ship and I'm not going to go back. With your eyes closed and your heads down, think about the things that stand in your way. Maybe you're doing it all right. Maybe, maybe you burned that ship a long time ago, but you know there's, there's room for growth. You could pray more. You could read more. You could witness more. There's, there's something that God's calling you to do because he's not calling any of us to stand still. And in this moment, if there's something that you needed to confess, maybe for a long time and you've not been able to do it, what I want you to do today, not for anybody in the world to see, but to make a confession in this room in front of people, in front of God, if you just want to, if you feel like you need to, and you want to raise a hand and say, I'm going to confess today, then I encourage you to raise that hand and you're making that confession. And you're not, it's not specific. I don't know what it is. I don't know what you're confessing to. But maybe there's something that you just need to unload. Today's your opportunity. If you'd like to raise a hand and say, yes, I'm confessing something. I'm letting go of something. Then you can go ahead and raise that hand. Nobody on earth is going to see it. Nobody, but I'll look just so you know somebody saw. And I don't care what it is. I've got them too. I'm, my hand's up. I see hands. I've seen several hands. That's good. Just let it go. Whatever it is. In this moment, you've confessed it in front of people. We know you're broken and messed up. God knows you're broken and messed up, and he knows exactly how you're broken and messed up. If Jesus was here in the flesh today, what he would say to you, do you love me? Then do what I'm calling you to do. Use the gift that I gave you in a small way, and then I'll grow it, and I'll show you day by day, step by step, what it is I'm asking of you.